Hey, welcome to the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Tony Guerra, pharmacist and publisher, bringing you help succeeding in your career, health, and wealth before, during, and after residency. You can sign up for the email list at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com to get your free LOI template or get editing help working one-on-one with me at residency.teachable.com. So reducing taxes, kind of maintaining your wealth, that's uh, number seven. And uh, when it comes to the financial advisor, I've talked to some financial advisors that are pretty well schooled in tax and some that are just literally just saying, well, we've got an accountant for that. Um, What do you do or what do you recommend in terms of getting your tax house in order? Well, first is to kind of learn how taxes work. Uh, There's a lot of ignorance on this topic. You know, I, I had a, something on the WCI forum the other day. It was somebody who'd done really well in their business. They'd gotten a business, uh, some sort of healthcare associated business was paying like 2 million bucks. And Ooh. his first question is, how can I pay less in taxes? And I'm like, the reason you're paying a lot in taxes is because you're making a lot of money. This is a good thing. <laughs> the question is not how to pay less in taxes. It's how to have more left after <laughs> paying taxes. And you're killing it at that, you know? Um, so it's just the realization that there's not like these tax tricks out there that you just don't know about. Okay. The, the way you reduce your tax bill is by living your financial life differently, you know, paying for healthcare, saving for retirement, sending your kids to college, getting married. Uh, you know, if, if the other spouse isn't working, um, having kids, these are the things that reduce your tax bill. Okay. You know, it's living your financial <laughs> life differently. It's not, oh, I got the home office deduction this year because I filed it, you know, some special way. You know, th- those are a little icing on the cake. The big things are are the big things. And you got to okay. pay attention to those when it comes to tax reduction. So white coat investor, come to me with your uptown problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly it, right? They're all They're all first world problems that we talk about at the white coat investor. But for those who have them, they're real problems. All right. Finally, we're at chap. We're at uh, you know uh, mission eight, which is where we get something sexy here. What do we invest in? So I don't know. We just take our time machine back in time and we go back to October and we say, "Gosh, Nvidia looks good. Uh, I think we're going to go all in." And uh, you know, I'll, quint- I'll quintuple my income, and then you know, maybe I'll just get out in July. You know, and and so you know, we 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 dream about those things. Uh, but but tell me about a little bit about your way of doing it, and and really more. Um, the w- three words that kind of just didn't leave my mind when I listened to your book a second time was um, the goal of eliminating financial worry. And when you have enough of a plan and you have enough in those plans, I feel like that that is a reasonable goal. So tell me a little bit about your kind of mindset on investing. Sure. I think the best thing to do for investing is to make a written investing plan and follow it. 90% of the questions I see about investing can be answered by, what does your written investing plan say you should do? And uh, because I don't have these questions every month. Every month I have to invest because every month I make more money than I spend and I have to invest it. Well, every month am I going to go and, oh, what's the best stock to invest in this month? I'd spend my entire month researching stocks. Who wants to spend their life doing that? I'd rather be off climbing in the Tetons with my son, right? Than doing that. So what do I invest in? Well, exactly what my plan tells me to invest in. This plan I wrote as a resident 20 years ago. I'm still investing that way. 
Same boring mutual funds. Yeah, there's been a little change here and there to the plan over the years. But for the most part, I'm investing in the same crap I was investing in in 2004. Okay. And when I, it's just a question of how much money I put in there every month. And that's the difference between what I made and what I spent. Um, and so I, I'm a big fan of having a written investing plan. Now, when you make your written investing plan, you need okay. to learn a little bit about investing you know, and how it works, what works and what doesn't. And when you dive into the data, you will quickly learn to, that there are some things that do not work for most people. Maybe there's a tiny percentage of them for whom they work, but for most people, they do not work. These are things like picking stocks, like trying to time the market, uh, like trying to pick active, uh, winning, actively managed mutual fund managers. These are things that the data is very clear don't work. So when it comes to investing in stocks, the data is pretty darn clear how almost all of us should invest. And that's to buy low-cost, broadly diversified index funds. And just stay the course with them. Buy and hold them. Put more in there every month. Always be buying. And guess what? After 10 or 20 years, you'll find out, hey, I'm rich. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is absolutely cool. All right, well, let's go from investing to, and you mentioned a couple of the financial mistakes maybe some people have made, like, oh, I thought I had it, you know. I bought Amazon at 100 in 1999 and then I just sold it when it was at 5. I finally gave up <laughs> on it. You know, <laughs> just whatever nightmare story there is, but but you talk a little bit more about uh, other financial mistakes. So tell me a little bit about correcting financial mistakes more as a I guess more as a learning process that this is just an ongoing process. Your recent episode talked about the difference between IRA and 401k and how that um you know we're going to have to Roth put the Roth for the, uh, I'm 51. So I get to put in that extra 7,500. And now the government says, well, we're going to kind of want taxes on, on some of that, but <laughs> you know, that's the minutia, but what are some of the financial mistakes that, um, you see and that people could correct right away and then how they can kind of continue to, to educate themselves by listening to the show. Cause you're answer driven or question driven, like people go on the speak pipe and that's, I was like, I had that question. Somebody asked the question for me. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. Most people do not become financially literate from the very beginning, mm -hmm. right? They go out there, they start working their career, they make a few mistakes, they do this, they do that. Something lights a spark and they decide, I got to learn this stuff. I want to become financially literate. And so they do that after two or three or five or 10 or 20 years. And at that point, they realize, oh, this is what I should have been doing from the beginning. Well, I haven't been doing that. I've done a few things differently. And so chapter nine in the book, mission nine, is to correct all those mistakes. Okay. And some of the common ones for doctors are doing things like buying whole life insurance. You know, oh. almost no doctor needs whole life insurance. Right. Right. But it gets sold to all kinds of them. And so they got to decide what to do with it. And it's been a number of years. Sometimes it makes sense to keep it. If it's just been a few years and it hurts, but oftentimes surrendering it after getting term life insurance in place is the right move. Or maybe they've been paying a financial advisor too much and getting bad advice and they need to fire that advisor. Or maybe they've built up a portfolio of, you know, individual stocks and they got to figure out what to do with these legacy investments now. Um, and so that's what chapter nine is about is just realizing that almost everyone makes mistakes. And, uh, and that's okay, but you need to, you know, take care of some of these big ones that are still impacting your financial life. Um, the saving for college, uh, I didn't know if that was, you. I don't think it was you, the physician, but the, whoever the physician was in there, we had this kind of 5,000, 5,000, 5,000, where it was, um, 5,000 from the student themselves in summer, 5,000 from the student during the school year, 5,000, maybe from 
uh, mom and dad, 5,000 from maybe a scholarship, and then 5,000 um, that they would get. But in there, it recommended state schools, or at least being mindful of the tuition if you're going to go to a private school. And then also that you should not be going into debt for it. And my wife and I's personal plan, we have our three houses we're going to have paid off to our rentals. And we're only putting 50000 for each daughter, uh, or we're only expecting fifty or 60000 for each daughter, whatever the market does. Um, so we're not, uh, we're, we're kind of of that mind, like if you go to you know state school, all will be well. If you want to go somewhere different, um, that's going to be on you a bit. Um, can you tell me what your particular um, you know thought is on uh, school and, and being mindful of that? Yeah, I think there's four pillars to paying for an undergraduate education. And the most important one and the one that most people ignore is school selection. You know, yep. picking a school you can actually afford as a family is huge, right? I can't believe how many people pay three times, four times, six times as much as I'm paying for my daughter in tuition, right? There are less expensive schools out there, and you ought to at least <laughs> consider the value proposition you're getting here, Yeah. particularly if you don't have the money, you know, <laughs> that's a much bigger issue. Okay. Other pillars besides choosing a school you can afford is the kid's contribution. Okay, the kids' savings, the kids uh, working during the school year in a part-time job, the kids working during the summers in a full-time job, the kids' scholarships, those sorts of issues. Uh, next is the parents' cash flow, right? It's not like the second your kid enrolls in college, you don't have any money coming in anymore. You can probably help with something, whatever you're paying for their car insurance at home or whatever you were paying to put food in their mouth, you can probably redirect some of that, maybe even a little bit more toward college. And then of course, parental savings. You know, This is the typical 529 plan or maybe a Coverdell ESA plan that you saved up in advance. But a lot of people think paying for college is all about saving it up in advance, and it's not. You know, the kid can contribute something. You know, most of us are professionals and our kids are relatively bright and they can get some sort of scholarship and, uh, and they can certainly work a little bit. Most of us work during college. Why do we think our kids can't, you know? Um, but none of those pillar pillars is debt. Right. I think it's not reasonable at all for the child of a physician in particular, and maybe pharmacists as well, to borrow for their undergraduate education. Now they want to go to dental school. They want to go to pharmacy school. Well, they may end up having to borrow a little bit of money for that. But for undergraduate, I just think most of our kids ought to be able to get through, um, you know, uh, without debt, without student loans. Um, but in the event that you are in that situation where the kid does need some student loans, let the kid borrow it. Don't be borrowing student loans for your kid. That's just that's just dumb. So yeah, and let the, the kid uh, be the debtor. The parent loan is uh, absent, I think, from the safe plan. So yeah. Uh, Absolutely they... not in my plan. <laughs> uh, oh, you mean this? You mean the same? Yeah, I mean the yeah. same plan, not well, your same plan. I, I don't know if it is or not. I know the pri the prior IDRs. It, it, you could get public service loan forgiveness for parental loans, but okay. it's based on the parents' employment. Oh, okay. employment. The parents got to work for a nonprofit. Oh, maybe that's uh, so a maybe so that's if you're a way in, to go. if you're in some sort of you know maybe there's a maybe there's an in there, but as a general rule, I just think it's a bad idea to borrow for somebody else's education. Okay. I am going to look into parent PSLF because I plan to be here a while. Yeah. Okay. You know, I just saw a statistic of how many people that are 65 plus still owe student loans. It's, and it wasn't that high of a percentage that were their kids' loans. A lot of them were their own loans. So there's a lot of people still running around with student loans in their in their senior years. 
Yeah, we're going to see October 1st. Well, I think it's going to take about 90 days. But October 1st, I think, is going to be a bit of a shock for for a lot of people as they turn the the loans back on. They say it's not going to affect the the economy too much, uh, just a tiny portion of, G, of GDP. But I don't know, 40 million people, that's, uh, that's a lot of people that are not going to feel so good about it. Yeah, in well, a lot of talk- ways, in a lot of ways, they're already back on. They're already accumulating interest. Oh yeah, the payments don't start till October. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's monopoly money now. You're gonna feel it a You're little right. bit. Later. Yeah. Um, so we're, when we're talking about passing on and avoiding probate, um, I guess I'm I'm not as skilled in this. I do know that uh, you can give I think like seventeen thousand uh, per person, and there's some massive number that's way above our net worth that that we would need to worry about, like in the millions. Um, but tell me a little bit about passing assets on and how you can make it a little bit better uh, for the kids or for the next, uh, you know, the next of kin. Yeah, I mean, chapter 11 in the book is all about estate planning and estate planning accomplishes three things. One, it makes sure the stuff you care about, whether it's your kids for minor children or your stuff and money uh, goes where you want it to go when you die. That's probably the most important aspect of estate planning. Two is to avoid probate. Can be expensive. It's a public process. Can be time consuming. It varies by state. Uh, And step three is to avoid taxes that you wouldn't otherwise have to pay. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is there are no death taxes for almost everybody that dies, you know, because they're just not wealthy enough. The exemption amount is so large these days. For a married couple, it's like 26 million right now you can pass on to your kids before you have to pay any sort of estate tax. Okay. Um, but if you get into that situation, yeah, it's worthwhile doing some estate planning to try to minimize that hit. But the kids... Um, but, but for most people, it's just not an issue. The kids... Do the kids pay any taxes on it? No. No. I mean, uh-huh. there are there are a few states with an inheritance tax. Okay. And there are a few states with an estate tax with a lower estate tax exemption than the federal one. Okay. And so it's all state-specific information. But in most states, there are neither of those. And only the federal estate tax applies. And that's got a huge exemption right now. So even the gift tax limit, even if you go over that 17000 a year that you can give anybody you want, you just start using up some of that exemption. You don't actually have to pay gift taxes until you've used up all 13 if you're single or 26 million if you're married. Okay. So it's just it's just not an issue for most people. I mean, most docs and most pharmacists just aren't wealthy enough to have to worry about estate taxes. Yeah, I'm not in that part of uptown. <laughs> 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 all right. Uh, step 12, uh, the lawsuits. Well, it's uh, not as much of an issue for pharmacists. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot more valuable to go after Purdue Pharma than it is to go after a single pharmacist, or maybe even uh, they'd go after a CVS or a Walgreens or something like that. Uh, but again, you you give some uh, good good advice here just to to protect it. But tell us a little bit about lawsuits, even though it's a little bit more with the MDs. Sure. Uh, again, as I mentioned about the book at the beginning, you know, this is something doctors worry about a lot. They shouldn't worry nearly as much as they do. Uh, but there are a few easy asset protection moves that people can do that are cheap, um, straightforward, very effective in the event that there was an ab- above policy limits judgment that wasn't reduced on appeal. Things like maxing out your retirement accounts. In almost every state, they're completely protected from your okay. creditors. You can declare bankruptcy and you still keep everything in your retirement accounts. You know, homestead exemptions in some states, you know, you get to keep some percentage of your home equity or even the entire thing, depending on the state. Um, you know, how you title your property matters. In some states, you can title it tenants by the entirety with you and your spouse. And that keeps a, a creditor of only one of you from being able to take it away. 
Um, you know, and just being familiar with your state's asset protection laws is beneficial. Uh, in okay. fact, that's about half of my asset protection book is just a list of the state asset protection laws. Okay. All right. And then when you say retirement account, that means that, so if somebody has a, a Fidelity account, a Schwab account, a, a Vanguard account, they're going to have maybe half their account is an IRA, 401k, that can't be touched, but it's the uh, maybe the the taxable account that they're you know putting money into that would be able to be uh, attacked or, or touched. That's that right. That mean? that one's going to be available to your creditors. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. But the point is, you know, max out that 401k because it isn't. Okay. All right. Max out that Roth IRA because it isn't. You know, that's the point. Okay. So I recommend that uh, you know, my tribe gets uh, you know, picks one of your four books, whichever one's more appropriate. I'm going to guess the first three uh, are going to be the ones to start off. Um, but most are listeners or watchers on YouTube. What do you think the best entry is for them to get into the White Coat Investor? Um, you actually provide the uh, 12 Steps if I remember right as a, kind of a benefit of joining the email list um, or the podcast list. Yeah, it's not nearly as uh, as you know detailed as the book is. The book's got a lot more detail in it. But yeah, we will send you 12 emails when you sign up for our newsletter. They are totally free and they will walk you through these steps. If you need more information, you know, you can you can go spend your 15 or 20 bucks on a book and and it'll help you and give you some additional information, but that's all pretty darn cheap as far as, you know, compared to what you'd pay a financial advisor. Okay. All right. Well, I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there anything else that you would want to say that maybe I haven't asked you about? Well, I just want to give a big shout out to your listeners, right? They're doing a hard job. They spent a long time learning how to do it. They've gotten a lot of education and training and uh, somebody ought to tell them thank you for what they're doing. So if they haven't heard that from anybody today, let me uh, let me tell them thanks for what they're doing. And uh, And remember that your income, for most of us, your income is your greatest wealth building tool. Okay. So take care of it, boost it, carve out as much of it as you can and use it to build wealth. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the Pharmacy Residency Podcast. Thanks for having me. This has been the Pharmacy Residency and Money Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You might want to check out our available residency audiobooks at pharmacyresidencypodcast.com forward slash books, or you can get your first book free if you've never been on Audible before. You can work one-on-one -on -one with me to get a better residency that will better suit your career, health, and wealth at residency.teachable.com. Feel free to send an invite to Tony PharmD on LinkedIn or email me at tonythepharmacist at gmail.com. Music was by Policy.